Welcome to episode two of a three episode series podcast on Medicare Part B hosted by Cindy Kraft. This three episode series is produced by the National Association for Home Care and Hospice in conjunction with the Home Care and Hospice Financial Managers Association Innovation Committee. Episode two discusses a clinical perspective of Medicare Part B in the home. Now, here's Cindy Kraft. Hello, this is Cindy Kraft with K&K Healthcare Solutions. And today we're gonna spend some time talking a bit more about Part B therapy in the home. Our guest today is Megan Bellanzano, fellow physical therapist, who's also the compliance officer and director of regulatory affairs for Fox Rehabilitation. Hello, Megan. Hi, Cindy, and thank you so much for having me here. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Today, we're gonna spend our time focusing a bit more on the clinical perspective when it comes to the provision of Part B in the home. I know in our first part of this podcast series, Sherry Teague and I talked about how a lot of times the viewpoint is clinical. The provision of therapy is the provision of therapy. Whether I'm doing it under Part A or Part B, it's all the same. But in talking with Megan, there were a few things she hit on that I thought would be important for our listeners um, to think about as you decide to journey into this Part B space. So Megan, if I'm trying to expedite the process, say, and I've really decided I want to have that Part B element as part of my care, it seems the logical choice would be to go find a outpatient therapist and lure them out of the clinic and say, listen, you know how to do outpatient. You know, I got this gig here in the house. Let's get you out of the clinic and you can come over here and do this in the house. That seems like it should be pretty simple. But what are some considerations? around having someone like that come into the home space? Well, you would think it would be simple because it does sound simple. I mean, when you talk about provision of care, you know, you and I talked about this too, physical therapy is physical therapy, but what can happen in the clinic versus what can happen in the home are two very different things. And what you have to do to get paid in the clinic versus what you have to do to get paid in the home under part a versus potentially part b they're you know they're different so i mean the first thing you know from a a regulatory compliance medicare perspective you want to make sure you understand is how the plan of care is written because you do have some different rules i know you guys already talked about homebound status and all of that but the length of the plan of care like that clinician now has the ability to write a plan of care that can go 90 days and then be reserted, physician signs it, and you're kind of good to go. That clinician really is autonomous, and they can go into a home and do a true clinical assessment. This is the nice thing that I've always loved about practicing in the home. You can work on bed mobility in their actual bed, and there is nothing like that. But there are other things that people might be used to from an outpatient world. So for example, I mentioned Medicare certifications, but some of those commercial plans, like they're not gonna let you go 90 days. They might only approve four visits at a time. So making sure you can help that clinician work through that process. They're gonna be used to having an office staff that probably does all of that for them and helping them maybe get a different kind of treatment approved. There are lots of things I think as PTs, We definitely think about the clinic one way sometimes, and then what you can do in the home, something different. And really, they're all the same. You can do techniques, you know, wherever you want to do them. The question really just becomes, 
how is it paid for? Because once you move from part A to part B and everything becomes unbundled, how you pay for some of these, you know, sort of larger scale clinical things becomes a question, especially for that clinician who's going, well, now what do I do? It's interesting. First of all, I think you pique people's interest by saying 90 days. Wow, sign me up because <laughs> I can go 90 days before I have to do a recertification. But the clinical element, you use the word unbundled. And I think it's it's an interesting word because on the Part A side, I think we've gotten very used to a visit is a visit. We don't deal with procedure codes. We don't need to be as specific. And sometimes things that wouldn't necessarily be considered skilled physical therapy or occupational therapy. An example that comes to mind is a routine dressing change. I cannot go out under Part A and just do the same thing a nurse would do and call it therapy. But if I'm there anyway, doing the magicalness that is therapy and addressing change <laughs> needs to occur, I can do that under A and it doesn't cause an issue because I just put down, here's my visit and here's what I did. There are things though, when you break it apart and start talking about things like wound care or lymphedema management. Now, part A providers may on the, both of those go, Ugh, yeah, I know what has kind of happened on A, but What's different about that if I'm looking at that under a Part B model? Well, let's start with wound care. So for example, you know, you look at wound care and you just talked about dressing changes. Like that is absolutely something you can do by yourself under Part B while you're there. The question then becomes, how do you document it? How do you bill for it? And who pays for the supplies depending on what you actually are doing? Because there isn't, you know, a magical CPT code for all of the different dressings that we would provide. So then, you know, what do you do if that dressing change needs to be done? Have you already coordinated that with the patient to have this on stock? Are you working with a vendor who's, you know, supplying things and then that gets reimbursed somehow? You know, like really knowing all the people in your space, in your area becomes super important as a Part B provider because it's not all together anymore as just a visit. It's more specific as to what you're doing. You know, the same thing comes up when you talk about a service like lymphedema management. You know, those wraps are not inexpensive. Um, and how do you get them for a patient can start to be a question for your outpatient provider because they may be used to walking into the back, they pull it out and they give it, they put, they put it on the person and somebody in the office magically deals with that. Now, you know, if that's not something you're used to dealing with, again, you have to know your providers, you got to know your vendors, and you got to be ready to have that conversation with the patient. I think this is one thing in part B that you really have to get used to is being ready to have that conversation with the patient about what this might cost. Because, you know, whether any of us want to admit it or not, some of our care is always driven by whatever payment model we're in and what that means to the patient's cost. So it's, hey, we can do this for this price, we can do that for that price becomes a real big conversation in Part B that doesn't necessarily happen in Part A. And lymphedema has always been a touchy subject because whether it's been A or B, um, it's it's been something from the cost side of your set of dressings. I've seen on the Part A side, surplus, let's just go with surplus, an overabundance of supplies being delivered to some patients and others, it's, it's not there when you're supposed to be doing this. Or I, I can see a, a risk in the, oh, I get 90 days. That's great because these lymphedema people seem to stay on forever. But what what is our exit strategy? Who is going to be able to support that kind of a program and not just a someone who may say, oh, well, we thought about lymphedema under A, that's such a pain. What if we just did it under B? Would it be simpler? We got to make sure we're thinking about those considerations. 
One other area, and I think it's, I just want to poke the bear a little bit, Megan, is, is about aquatic therapy. Because people don't think about that necessarily because, okay, it's a clinic that happens to have a pool. But in some parts of the country, our patients have a pool. Or on the case of Part B, they have access to a pool somewhere in the building or maybe in the neighborhood. How does that work under B? Can you do that? Aquatics is such a fun topic, and it's interesting that we're recording this in February because it usually starts to become a big question in March or April when it starts to warm up and people are like, can we get in my pool? And the clinician says, well, um, let me ask. And you can do it in the home, but you have to be very careful. And this goes back to like all of the admin stuff that happens behind the scenes because it really depends on how you've set up your Part B services. Different states have different requirements for what you can and can't do um, in a patient's home pool, or if they say, hey, can you come with me to the YMCA and we can work in that pool? You know, like I can book it for a period of time. Like, can you do that? It really becomes state specific. And then you have to be ready to say, okay, I did aquatics. It's appropriate. I mean, that's always the fun question too. Is the patient appropriate for aquatics? Because Under the aquatic CPT code, you have to be able to demonstrate that you can do things in the water that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do with the patient on land. So it's not just, okay, we're going to go jump in the pool for a little while. You know, there has to be a real clinical reason why you're going into the water. That's very interesting, Megan, clinically, because I think on the Part A side, it's been like, well, we don't have an aquatic code. So yeah, you could get strengthening, you could work on on, you know, aerobic capacity. There's different things you could do in that pool. It may not have really thought that through. Or on the B side, yeah, it's not just let's go splash around because you'll burn some calories and get, you know, some, you know, improve your abilities. You have to be very specific about what you're doing in the pool and why it took a pool to do that. You do. So, so for some of these, you know, I, I think a path many agencies are considering um, is the expansion into Part B by virtue of utilizing the clinicians they have, the program they have, and expanding that part under their current Medicare Part A license. But I, I think some folks are saying, you know, I get the Part B, I see the opportunity for Part B, I have patients that I can't keep under A. But the idea of trying to keep everybody on top of CPT codes and and all of these other pieces, maybe I should just get a partner. How what would you recommend to an organization that's thinking about partnering with a Part B provider as opposed to creating that whole program themselves? So I think the partnership between Part A and Part B is is huge, and I, I say that a little selfishly as a Part B provider because. You know, we really find that when you work with a Part A agency and there is that appropriate handoff between the two providers, you can provide a wonderful level of care that keeps someone safely in their home, which is, let's face it, where we all want to be. I don't think there's anybody that's like, I don't want to live at home anymore. Most people want to be at home. You know, important things, I think, you know, really, and it starts from the top down is communication, you know, making sure that you're talking with them regularly and handing them the information they need. I'm sure like, you know, Part A agencies sometimes have a problem getting information from the hospital or the referral source. It it shouldn't be a surprise that we sometimes have the same problem, you know, making sure that that handoff, the information about the patient is coming over, what kind of home exercise exercise program they were provided, 
or you know what was their last functional status so that we know where they ended with you guys and where we can pick up. The other thing that's really important is closing the home health episode in Medicare before we start, because if it's not closed, that Part B provider can't bill. You know, you can't bill two things at once. So the whole thing for me, I think, is really that team approach and then making sure that that Part B provider feels comfortable then communicating back, hey, this person had ABCD happen, and now it's time for them to go back to you because they need a different level of care now. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the the care transition element because the Part A side is having more attention paid to that. And we see questions coming into Oasis E about specific things, about handing off medication lists and such to the next level of care. I think sometimes we've forgotten that Part B could very likely be the next level of care. I think sometimes it's been more of we've done the Part A, you know, joint replacement just happened, and then we see the patient going to outpatient. And that's really the end of the documentation of anything that happened from a transition. So whether that is going to a brick and mortar B or to a home-based B, we really do need to think about what does that handoff look like? And sometimes I think when you said, you know, the difficulties you have getting referral information are the same that A has. It's almost like we know that it can be awful, but we don't necessarily think how could we help the next level not have the same thing happen um, so that a person who's transitioning from A to B is able to do that smoothly and is not then taking a step back with respect to, I don't know what was going on on the A side, so let's you know evaluate from a therapy perspective, let's be conservative in what we do, as opposed to building on what they gained in that prior level of care. So I think even if an, a Part A entity does not pursue B or does not partner officially with B, you kind of are partnered with B to a certain extent when someone goes on to outpatient therapy after this. And how well have we done in establishing a good transition to set them up for success? So I want to thank you very much, Megan, for spending a few minutes with us today. You've given us lots of things to think about. And we want to thank everyone for taking some time to spend with us today. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode in our three-part series. On behalf of NAC and HHFMA, we hope you've enjoyed this podcast. And for more information, check out NAC.org at nahc.org.